I think I got it on. There we go. Good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Matt Warren. I am one of the elders here at the church, and I'm excited that you're here to worship with us today. Um, we are going to be starting a new series this morning. Uh, the series title is The Pillars of Our Faith. And as we, uh, the elders and deacons, met a couple weeks ago, uh, we've just got this real sense about uh, some things that are going on in our church life uh, and then in the culture as well, that we just feel like if, if we don't have some of these foundational like truths really well-developed in our understanding of who the Lord is, then we're not going to be ready for uh, like the next season of our church life as the Lord brings some more growth. Uh, and I say that because we're in some leadership development things right now. Um, and we're, we're anticipating God doing some things. And so part of this is uh, we as leaders need to be focused on what will be taught in our church. And so this is a series that I really feel like the Lord is giving us to uh, like handle some of these pillars so we really are grounded well in the, the truth of our faith. And so this morning, we're going to kick this off in a couple ways. And um, maybe you have to indulge me a little bit. Um, some of this is coming out of my own studies, uh, where in the last several years, working through historical theology things, uh, there's, there's roots of this that are found there. But I think it's also important for us, because we're going to look at this uh, as we go through this, we don't exist in a vacuum. You, you realize that, R right? Um, Gina's like so relational. She's like, yeah, I know everybody needs to be like me, high energy and church history. Yeah. Okay. So, but, but it, part of it is we, we, we have to recognize not just that church history is important, but I think it goes back to what we, we looked at a couple weeks ago when we were in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And the witnesses are, are, have gone before us, okay? And so that, that part of what church history provides us is a, a good understanding of what the, the, our faith is really about. And so where we're going to start this morning is I want us to look at creeds and confessions. And we're not going to look at any particular ones today. This is really a setup for some things that are going to come in future weeks, okay? But I'm going to be talking about those things. Now, here's, uh, as I was thinking about this, I was like, how do I uh, make this a biblical sermon um, when we're dealing with creeds and confessions that are not scripture like themselves, so I'm going to give you a couple things uh, in, in just a minute to, to describe that. So I want to recommend a book. Okay, I do this on some occasions. This book, like you can read the title. Michael, can you read the title? Okay, I'm just, I'm kind of holding it up just so you see it's not the, the, like the biggest, thickest book in the world. So I would easily uh, recommend this to a high schooler. Um, I think it's very, very readable for anyone that is 7th, 8th, ninth grade easily. Um, so that's middle schoolers too. Um, but it's called Know the Creeds and Con uh, Councils. Know the Creeds and Councils. Now he does, uh, it's by a guy named Justin Holcomb, H-O-L-C-O-M-B. Know the Creeds and Councils by Justin Holcomb. Um, one of the things that he does, and, and it's, it's an introduction to creeds and confessions and councils. Um, so if you like any of the history side of things, he's going to give you a very good introductory level uh, understanding of these things. 
Uh, he's not going to be comprehensive, though. So, so you need to understand that. It would be like starting to, to dip your toe into the, the pool of this kind of stuff. So if you, you like it at all, um, I would highly recommend this book because it gives you that good entry way in. And then you can go into some other richer, bigger, broader books that, that may give you a lot more stuff. And if you want some of those recommendations, I'd love to give, give those to you as well. Um, so how do creeds and co- confessions work? Well, let me, let me begin with some scripture because I want us to understand this very vital truth. We know that creeds and confessions are not equal with scripture, okay? Let's just put that on the table. But they have their rightful place. And what we see in scripture is like a crystallization of some of these ideas that, uh, that were established, but later people took the things that were the scriptures we see the, the Old Testament saints and New Testament saints doing, and then they said, let's, let's, this will be helpful for us. So I'm, I'm going to like break this down a little bit. So how many of you know what the Shema passage is? Just raise your hands. Okay, a lot of you do. Good. Okay. The Shema, if you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is, I don't think, a creed or a confession necessarily, but it is kind of the idea of those, like an early establishment of those. So, so what, why the Shema passage is named what it is, is the first words in the passage is the word uh, in Hebrew, Shema. And it just simply means this here. And it's kind of an imperative idea that, that we need to be reminded and instructed to hear this. And so this was a statement that the Israelites would say again and again. And when I read this, and we read this together, you're going to go, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with this. So Deuter- um, Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4 through 9, okay? Here we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We'll stop right there. So, so what happened in the, in the Jewish culture is they actually had these things called phylacteries. They were little um, boxes that they would wear, or little containers, and they would actually store up the Shema passage in that, and they would open it and read those things. They would have it placed on the door of their house. So when they would go buy this, they would actually recite that passage in their life, uh, in their daily routine, because they believed and held firmly to this idea of the importance of teaching these things to their children. So so it became part of their daily routine. It's it's almost like a creed, even though it's not a creed because it's Scripture itself. But but it's this idea that we would know these things in such a way that it would have an intimate place in our lives and we would repeat it, and it would help us cling to the truth of who the Lord is. Let me give you a couple of other instances of creeds. If you have uh, your Bibles and want to turn there with me, turn over to Matthew chapter 28. Most likely you'll be familiar with this, Matthew 28. I'll give you just a second to to get there. This is part of the Great Commission um, where Jesus is giving final instructions to his disciples about how they're to to make disciples themselves. 
Um, and remember, that's the command in that passage is to make disciples. And how you do that, you do it as you're going, as you're teaching, and as you're baptizing, which is about identification in the church. And so here is this kind of formula that Jesus gives his disciples, though, though it's not a creed, it's still that kind of crystallization of ideas that look like a creed, but he's giving them the formula about how they're to baptize. So let's, let's read verse 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that, that baptism formula right there really jumps out that, that we would have that kind of framework and statement within the, the daily routines of the church life. So if you've been around our church for any length of time and seen us baptize, that's the formula that we still apply in our church today when we baptize a, a believer. Um, let me give you another one. Turn over to Romans chapter 1 with me. This one's a little different. And I think we see some of these throughout Romans as well, and we're going to look at one more in 1 Corinthians. Um, but this one in Romans 1 is, is very interesting. Um, starting in verse 3, we'll go through verse 6. And I want you to hear kind of how, like, I'm, I'm going to try to pause and break this into a little bit of phraseology so you kind of get the feel of what this is. It's not just, I know when we sometimes read our text, we read it in the flow of the paragraphs and, and that kind of thing, but I want to try to break it down just a little bit and give you this idea. So uh, we read in Romans 1, 3, and it says, concerning his son, okay, so you kind of get this, like, uh, title, if you will, concerning Jesus, okay, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations. So you get this like package of what the hope of the gospel is also with this uh, culmination of like the missions idea that we would make Jesus known. So it's kind of like the entirety of the gospel and hope in one kind of phrase, if you will, even though it's a lengthy phrase. But you can see if, if you had that memorized, how beneficial that could be for you living, being reminded to live out your purpose as a Christian in life. Does that make sense? So one of the, my favorites, turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. Y'all didn't know y'all were going to be in Bible drill this morning, did you? 1 Corinthians 15. This is, this is one of my favorite passages in, in this kind of crystallization of, of these kind of ideas. So I'll give you just a minute. I, I see some of you flipping. So if it's Romans, uh, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Okay, so right there if that'll help you. All right, 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to read verses 3 through um, 7, I think is where it is. Yes. Or maybe eight, seven. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. So, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, here's where it really get, begins. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then Paul in verse 8 gets kind of personal, so we'll, we'll stop there. So, 
again, you get that idea of, of the gospel message being crystallized, how the, the importance of the scriptures pointing to Christ being fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then the testimony of the witnesses, it's like this whole nutshell piece that is important to our faith. And so I've often said that's the gospel in a nutshell because you could take those very truths right there out of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following and share those with someone that has a little bit of an understanding about who Christ is and begin to break that open and tell them the importance of Christ and knowing Him as their Savior. And even with the witnesses, it gives us this historical representation of who Christ is. So it's a great place. Let me give you two more passages that you might want to go up, uh, go look up on your own, and then we're just not going to take time to read. And that would be in 1 Peter 3, 18 and following. 1 Peter 3, 18 and following. And then 1 Timothy 3, 16. And that's 1 Timothy 3.16. So if you're taking notes this morning, which I would really encourage you to do, I'm going to give you a list uh, of seven things here in a minute that are going to help you understand the importance of creeds. Um, it's not my own list, so that'll make it even more important for you to, to write it down because it's from Al Mohler. And I think he's a great, great thinker. Uh, he's the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville. And uh, just a brilliant mind. And I think this is a great assessment of the value of creeds. So when we think about creeds, how many of you have come from like maybe a, a higher church background? Maybe that's Catholic or um, uh, I'm trying to think of some others, but Presbyterian. Um, what's another one, Gina? Help me out. Michael, help me out. Say Anglican, Lutheran, yeah. Where you have had creeds like in, as part of your routine in worship. Just raise your hands real quick. Okay, one of you. I think I saw that. Okay, so... That's interesting to me, okay? So it's, it's partial, this, this, I think, sets this up even more importantly. Because in the modern church, I think creeds and confessions have largely been lost. And I think that's a shame, if I'm, I'm being very, very honest. And Judd and I, you and I talked about this last week, even as we met. And so I understand your background and, and maybe some of the, the tension. So the question would be, why is, why have creeds been lost? Well, and, and maybe if we're not from a high church background, we've just never been around them. So um, I think part of it is that in Protestantism, sometimes we drift into this mindset that we don't need those because they have had a root in some Catholic um, traditions. And that's not always a bad thing. Remember, the church existed for nearly 1,500 years, in, and it was just the Catholic church. Okay? And I'm not saying that they had everything right. But I'm not saying they had everything wrong either. And so we need to be respectful of that. Now, I think that they had some major things wrong. That's why we're Protestants, okay? But I think there's elements of this that we need to recognize it, that the creeds and confessions that we do have are very, very substantial for us. Here's part of my struggle in my own personal background. Uh, I've, I've only really been in, in ministry um, and growing up in a Baptist church. And so Baptists tend to say, we have no other creed than the Bible. <laughs> That's kind of like this rally cry. And I understand that, okay, to some big degree that we, we go, Scripture is the supreme final authority. We need to hold that. And I'm not putting creeds on par with the Scripture. But we also need to see where creeds and confessions have value. So let me, let me try to summarize a couple of these things. First of all, 
I think that when we look at creeds, it helps us understand our tradition, what the, the foundation of Christianity really has uh, seen and understood the scriptures to teach th throughout all of history. Okay, so they help us in that, that sense. I've mentioned this. It reminds us that we don't live in a vacuum. I think especially in our modern era, our tendency is to look back on anything historical and think because they didn't have the technology, because they didn't have the information, that they were stupid. <laughs> they were underdeveloped. And that is just not the case. As a matter of fact, I, I personally think that they had maybe some extra wisdom because they were closer to Christ in that era, and, and they were wrestling through some things then that actually ha they had more clarity than we have because of the distance, because uh, 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 the, the distance that we have actually gives us time and distance, and if you will, that things have gotten cloudy, and, and more and more ideas have come into the mix, and we tend to lose sight of the strong handles and filters that, that sometimes the creeds and confessions actually give us. So remembering that we don't live in a vacuum is really, really important. Um, so let me share this last thought here too. I think that, and we're going to look at this word in just a second, but the idea of what a creed is, uh, actually we'll just look at it right now. The word itself, me, it comes from the Latin that means I, I believe, credo, I believe. And so I think it's also really helpful when we think about confessing to a creed that we're going, this is what we hold to. This is something that we align with. And we're going to look at that a little bit more specifically in a few more minutes. So what's the difference between a creed and a confession? So I'm kind of using those two words this morning, but I think we've got to understand the distinctions, okay? And then how that actually relates to Scripture. So let me give you a hopefully helpful illustration. C.S. Lewis tried, how many of y'all know who C.S. Lewis is? Yeah, I wanted to get the students' attention real quick. Y'all better. We're about to read Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe in a couple, starting a couple weeks, right after fall break. So you want to be here for that. It's a fun, fun study, um, and it's so rich in gospel material. Um, so C.S. Lewis, when he became a believer, he was an apologist. He was trying to, like, help people understand the truth and the hope of the Christian faith especially as one who came to Christ a little bit later in life. And so uh, an apologist is one who gives those answers. He's not apologizing like saying, I'm sorry for. He's giving a defense for why he holds to these truths in the Christian faith. And so one of the illustrations he gave about the difference between creeds and confessions I think is really helpful. He talked about creeds being like the hall in a home, you know, that, that space where you go down, but there's what, what, what really is in a hall? Like you might have some pictures on the wall or something like that, right? Maybe a little, you know, vase or something like that. But typically there's not a lot in a hall. But the hall is, you got to have it to get access to the rooms, right? And so he said the creed is like the hall. It gives us access. It's, it's a, a, form, a formation, if you will, that gives us this ability to go into all these other rooms. The hall or the, the rooms themselves are the places where the fireplace and the chairs and the meal would take place. So it's like you go into those kind of rooms, and, and, and in my mind, I'm almost envisioning, I'm stretching his illustration here a little bit, but I'm envisioning like picking up a book. And then that book, it would be the scripture and where you're starting to get your ideas out of. But those rooms would be the confessions where you begin to dive in more to the, the dialogue and have a broader discussion. 
So I like this. I think this is helpful too. C.H. Spurgeon, um, he referenced creeds a ton through his uh, ministry. Uh, I actually did a, a paper on his use of the Nicene Creed. It was so interesting to see how often he utilized the phraseology in the creed and referenced the creed itself. And, and remember, he's a pastor in the mid-1800s. So, so very interesting, a Baptist pastor doing those things. But here's what he said about creeds. He said, a creed is a picture. You know, a pitcher like you pour, not a, a baseball pitcher, okay? Thank you, Rain. I appreciate somebody catching that and laugh, laughing a, 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 at least a little chuckle. Um, a creed is a pitcher in which the water is held, but it is not the water itself. I think that's helpful because you get this idea of how do we take all of God's word and distill it into something that we can hold and then distribute well. We, we can carry our Bibles around, and I encourage you to find a, a Bible that's pocket size if you like to write them and those kind of things. Nowadays, with our tablets and phones, you can have it on that device, but, but you have access to it. But here's the thing. Even having access to it, if you don't know how to use the search in, in, engines in them well, you struggle, don't you? So a creed is like the picture. It takes this, and it gives us that ability to say, I'm going to pour out this truth. It, it helps us to, to like rightly hold tight to these truths so that we can handle it well. Now, does it replace the authority of Scripture? Absolutely not. But it helps us put good handles on those things. So let's, um, let's look at these seven things. Okay, I'm going to give you this list of seven things that are from Al Mohler that I think help us understand the importance of creeds. Okay, first of all, and I would strongly encourage you to write these things down because it'll help you understand why we're doing the, these next couple weeks as we're coming up. So one, creeds define the truth. Like that picture, it defines the truth. I, I love what Al Mohler says here. He says they are... Um, the. He describes the benefits of, of creeds, and he says it this way, they are what all Christians believe. So when you start looking at specific creeds, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, those things are actually what we are to believe. And, and, and that's why we say them together. We believe this, or I believe this, as you begin that. So all Christians believe more than this. He, he says, let me, let me back up and read this again. The creeds are what all Christians believe. We all believe more than the creed or what is contained in it, but none or no Christian can believe less. That's an important idea that Moeller has connected right there. If, and, and we can look at something like the, the Nicene Creed, which really unpacks the idea of the um, incarnation and the, the divinity of Christ in that creed, that he is fully God, fully man, but he's also uh, very God of very God, light of light. There's a great phraseology in that creed. And what it's saying is it's, it, it's addressing the heresies of that day. And if we believe anything less than what that creed defines for us, pointing back to Scripture about the person of Christ, then we're not holding the truth of Christ's divinity. And that's helpful because these creeds do define the truth. Second, I think this is a good illustration here, creeds also correct error. They, they prevent us from falling into wrongly interpreting Scripture because our tendency is at times to 
try to weigh out some things in Scripture, and we can drift off a little bit. But if we have these creeds in mind that help frame these things up, like the picture, go back to that, that picture that contains these and that great minds have gotten a hold of these truths and they define them for us, they keep us in the bounds of that without going into error. And that way as we talk about these different doctrines with one another, we hold those measuring sticks by the, by the creeds and it keeps us in good bounds. So it corrects errors. So th- that brings us to the third point. Creeds provide rules and standards for, guard, for God's people. They provide rules and standards for God's people, giving us guardrails on how we're supposed to operate in, within framework. So this is especially important to me because the more time you spend dialoguing with people uh, about faith matters, you start to really recognize there's a lot of diversity in um, people's views on things. And we need to be careful not to deem somebody a heretic because there's, there's a distinction But we also need to know when someone's so far off that they're introducing something that is not healthy, okay? And and so that's an important piece of this. So they they provide those guardrails and boundaries for healthy theological discussion. Fourth, this is going to be interesting because I think this is where, like this morning, we sang the doxology, right? Great, great piece of truth about the, the, the Lord, and we do Trinitarian worship in that. But here's the fourth thing. Creeds teach the church how to worship and confess our faith. Creeds teach the church how to worship and confess our faith. I, I think that the more time I've spent just reading into, uh, like not reading and studying is what I mean, confessions or creeds, not trying to read into them and you know, add my own stuff, just understanding them. The more I grow in my appreciation of the Lord. And you say, well, what, doesn't Scripture do that itself? Yes, it does. But I think there's sometimes it's important to have a handle or a lens that helps you look at the Scripture well. So, so let me illustrate that real quickly. How many of you came, when you came to faith, you knew everything you needed to know about Christ at that moment? I'm not raising my hand either, <laughs> okay? Because that, that's, that's silly. That, that's like saying, hey, I learned calculus before I learned addition, right? Or I, I gained an entire vocabulary and, and, um, at once. You can't do that. You build into these things. And creeds are like those ABCs of our faith. They help us have the right framework and boundaries so that we can explore things more deeply. So, so that's why I think they're so beneficial. Uh, fifth thing, and I've mentioned this again and again, creeds connect us to the faith of our fathers. They, they, they connect us to the faith of our fathers. I think that if, you, if you're getting into your, well, I could even say this. I was talking to somebody this morning, and they made a comment about a, a friend of theirs, like being younger and like feeling that they hadn't arrived yet in their life. I remember being 25. And turning 25 and where I was comparing myself to my, my parents and where they were, I didn't have kids at that point. I was still in school. You know, it's like I, I just felt like really underdeveloped. And I think all of us do some kind of reflecting like that at some point in our lives, don't we? And maybe at different seasons where we go, how do we relate? Well, I, I think when we connect back to the faith of our fathers, it helps to propel us in maturity. 
Does, does that make sense? We need those connections to find greater help as we mature because we realize we're not just trying to do, plow the ground on our own. It's not stuff that we have to reinvent. We can rest on the shoulders of giants. That's good for us, okay? Number six, this is so simple, but I think it's important. Creeds summarize our faith. Now, let me say this again. No creed can replace the Scripture, but they help to summarize our faith. They attempt to give us substance to our faith. And I think that goes back to that previous point, um, number four, where we get the commonality uh, of um, what we understand. Lastly, number seven, creeds define true Christian unity. I think that's so important. In a day where it seems like denominations start popping up more and more, within denominations you start getting even broader divisions now. It's almost chaotic when you start to talk to people in different backgrounds in different parts of the nation, different parts of the world, about what Christianity looks like for them. And creeds, when we come back to those things, they help us find unity. And, and I'll be honest, I, I need unity with brothers and sisters in Christ that may find distinction from me. We need to be able to go, here's where we do agree and there's other things that we, these differences that we can set aside, but here we can line up and we can celebrate the goodness of our, our loving God and Father through, that has given us salvation through Jesus Christ. I, I like what J.I. Packer said. Um, Gina, this is part of what you guys are going through. He's got so many gold nuggets. He's, he's able to write so like, profoundly in such concise theology stuff. He, he said this, that creeds were often used as instruments of evangelism. I love that. Because I think so many times we live our faith thinking that it's just about our, our own stuff, right? That it's just me and the Lord, or it's my church and the Lord. No, they also are instruments about how we live out our lives. Because when we worship well, remember that's one of the points of the creeds too, is when we worship well, our worship ought to be infectious to a lost and hopeless world, where people need Christ. They recognize in us there's something distinct and different because we rightly know our Heavenly Father, that, that the Godhead is worthy of our worship, and that as we know and understand Him better, and we have these tangible handles by which we can speak to them very easily, it, it's beneficial and it becomes an evangelistic tool. So, what is... Let's look at this now. Let's talk a little bit about confessions because I want to give you a little bit more. Remember that, that distinction I've talked about with, uh, that C.S. Lewis talked about creeds being kind of short and then confessions being a little bit different where you spend the time in the room doing some dialogue. And I think that a, a lot of times we, we fail to remember that the, the importance of confessions even in the routine life of the church. So confession, a creed tends to be like short and succinct, typically about a paragraph, maybe two or three, but it's not this lengthy doctrine, uh, doctrinal statement that explores tons and tons of things. But a confession is much more of that. And confessions tend to take um, a little bit different shape in a lot of ways because of the, the length and the nature of them. We have a confession in our church. We have a, it's called a statement of faith. 
So you can go online if you haven't been there. You can get, get there and look at our beliefs, and you can read our statement of faith. And our statement of faith, listen to this and don't let it scare you, it has actually changed since 2015-ish. And here's why it changed since 2015-ish. If you know anything about the Obergefell decision, I think I said that right, Obergefell. Did I say it right? Who knows? Nobody knows. Y'all don't care. That's, that's the decision that came down from the Supreme Court to um, allow homosexual marriage in the U.S. Huge decision. Huge impact on the church. Because we could actually find ourselves being sued if we de- deny or decline certain people privileges and access to marriage in our, on our campus or performing ceremonies. If these things aren't included in our doctrinal statement and our bylaws about how we handle that. So a statement of faith or confession will look at a timely issue and will modify things to answer things that are happening in the culture. That's wisdom. So let me give you a couple of examples of that that have come up in recent years. The Chicago Biblical Statement of Inerrancy. Um, That confession specifically deals with what, uh, what is uh, evangelical Christianity views as the authority of Scripture. Incredibly important confession. How many of you remember in 2017, a big brouhaha here in Nashville? The Nashville statement was published in 2017. That statement actually has to do with human sexuality and gender roles in marriage and those kind of things. It's important. I'm going to look at that in just a minute and give you some specifics about that. So, so these things are still developing. What are a couple of the most famous uh, types of con- or specific confessions? Throw, throw a couple out. Some of y'all know. So I can't. I, yeah, so the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. Yeah. The Westminster Confession. Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, the Westminster Confession is kind of one of those big standards in Protestantism. It is a pre- Presbyterian document, but it became a, almost a foundation um, after the Protestant Reformation that most other confessions tried to mirror. And so those confessions took on de- denominational flavors. So you also have the Belgic Confession. Um, which is just a ref- broad, like a broad reform. The uh, Augsburg, the Heidelberg Confession is another one. Um, that's Lutheran, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, so you have all of these confessions, but what they do is they do set things apart a little bit differently for those distinctions that denominations would experience. Um, so, for instance, if you were to examine the Westminster uh, Confession, you're going to find that it's going to elevate certain ideas, especially that of paedobaptism. What is paedobaptism? That means the baptism of infants, okay? And so we hold as Baptists to what credo-baptism, meaning that we say, what does credo mean? I believe. So credo is you're confessing your faith, and that is after that confession, you're baptized, okay? So there's a distinction in how those, uh, those documents outline some of those differences in our faith. So let me read a little bit from the Nashville statement, because I think this is really helpful. And it's, so I'm going to read a preamble and then just one of the articles, okay? So this is the preamble. It says, by and large, the spirit of our age, 
You hear that? Talking about our era, okay? No longer discerns or delights in the beauty of God's design for human life. Many deny that God created human beings for His glory and that His good purposes for us include our personal and physical design as male and female. Isn't that a great statement? Immediately they hit on God's sovereignty, the creation, human design, male and female. Boom, it's just so powerful. They continue in this preamble. It is common to think that human identity as male and female is not part of God's beautiful plan, but is rather an expression of an individual's autonomous preferences. You hear them addressing this specifically. There's, I pick up, I'm not reading the whole preamble, just, just picking up. Therefore, in the hope of serving Christ's church and witnessing publicly to the good purposes of a God for human sexuality revealed in Christian Scripture, we offer the following affirmations and denials. And I think there's 14 or so articles altogether. So here's the first article. And this is not long. It says, we affirm that God has designed marriage to be a covenantal sexual procreative lifelong union of one man and one woman as husband and wife, and is meant to signify the covenant love between Christ and His bride, the church. (laughs) Boom, clear, right? It's great. Then they say this in Article 1, we deny that God has designed marriage to be a homosexual, polygamous, or polyamorous relationship. We also deny that marriage is a mere human contract rather than a covenant made before God. It's good, isn't it? You get the idea of how these 150-plus men gathered here in Nashville to, to establish what biblical doctrine teaches. And so that, that Nashville statement of those 14 articles that are just short like that, it becomes something that we can get our heads wrapped around. It also becomes something that evangelicals, I remember when this was published, and, and I went out and as a pastor, I got to like have the privilege to affirm that. Not that anybody cares who I am, but it, I, I wanted a name attached to that. Because I think it's so well done, and it's timely for our age to clarify what sound biblical teaching is regarding humanity's creation, our identity as images of God, image bearers of God, created by Him as male and female. And then the importance of what they say about marriage in this whole document. It's just powerful. And we need to understand those things and know this is a tool for not just pastors, but for you who encounter this stuff in everyday life. Students. Let me speak really carefully to you for just a moment. I remember when my older two uh, began to have, like, social media stuff was taking some shape in their lives. Uh, They're 24 and 23, so don't think they're ancient, okay? They're just a couple years older than most of y'all in here. And when when some of their friends on social media, um, and I say friends, that's a broad term, okay? Um, More of their acquaintances. But began to, to, to share things about being polyamorous. I was like, what in the world? You guys are experiencing that all the time. It's not just social media. It's, it's probably every day in the halls where you're walking to and from school, to and from class. It, it's going to be all over social media for you guys. The, the, the world in the last seven to eight years with that stuff has like turned upside down. It's not where it was uncommon, now it's commonplace. You need to have a tool where you can go and look and find concise answers, those pictures that will pour out the biblical truth, but you have a quick handle to help you, like the Nashville Statement. All you have to do is put it on, go to your phone and type in Nashville Statement, and it's going to go right to that, and it's very easy to navigate all of these things. 
you need to be equipped. Parents, let me encourage you. You need to sit down and read that with your students. To have them have a biblical picture that they have access, that you work through that with them. Don't wait for them to just go out on their own and get it. It will not be good enough. It'll be a little bit late if they're at that point because that means that either they're hurting and struggling in this or they got a friend that is seriously hurting or struggling in this. Don't wait for the tyranny of the urgent. Head it off by making disciples. Give them the resource and the tool to handle these things. Mason, you're my kid's age. Am I right in this? I know what Belmont has, is like, and I'm not trying to name schools necessarily, but it's every day there, and I know. That's not the world most of us grew up in, but it is vastly different, and it's only going to become worse. That's why a creed and a confession is so beneficial to us to have, because it, it is that picture by which we can handle truth without having to go and explore all of Scripture and give all these thousands of verses and get lost in that and get into... These are things that will just help us rightly hold well to what the Scriptures teach. So, I want to give you a piece. I worked hard on this, and you'll have seen or heard something like this. So, Julie, if you could throw this up on the screen for me. I want to, and I'm going to try to get out of the way a little bit just to make sure that y'all can see this well. I'm going to also help me look at this. So, if you look at this concentric circle, um, and basically what this is, is trying to say how do all of these areas relate to us, okay? And if, if you want this, um, I see some people taking out a phone, throwing it up on a picture. I've got it in a JPEG or PDF. Just email me, and I'll email it to you, Okay. Um, there's a lot of these kind of diagrams out there on the web. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I, I tried to like work through and morph them a little bit to, to something I think is actually a little bit more user-friendly than some of them, not because it's my thoughts, but I'm just trying to reshape and repackage. Um, so here's, here's the, the, the idea of this, okay? The, the Scripture, if you notice, that is the very center, okay? And the word core is above it to describe what the scripture is. Creed is below it as the core. So the creed is su submissive, if you will, to the authority, the centrality of scripture, but it's what helps us know the core well. Okay? So, so I'm not elevating creeds above, but they're part of that defining of the core that what Moeller said, all of us, is the least that we need to know. Does that make sense? And so, obviously, we need to know Scripture, but looking at creeds helps us define that really well. And so, it's those handles at the core that we can walk away with and go, this is, this is really healthy for us as, as Christians together. The, the next circle is confession, and that's what we've been talking about. And, and here's what I would say about confessions. They're founded on Scripture. They're, they're not, I mean, everything's founded on something when we get down to it, but they're, they're founded Corporate persuasion. So, so I've used those words very carefully. So they're looking at Scripture, and usually it's a group of people, some kind of corporation, that says this together is how we're agreeing. 
So when you have 150 evangelicals, all denominations coming together in Nashville in 2017 to address the Nashville statement on human sexuality and gender identity and all those things, it's, it's a broad group, but they're green, okay, for a consolidated purpose. When you have uh, a group of Presbyterians getting together back in the 1500s and developing the Westminster uh, um, Confession, that's a, a group of those guys that are very like-minded. When the Second London Baptist Confession came out, same thing. They said, hey, we're a group of Baptists that want to get together and define a couple of distinctives from the Westminster, and we're going to use the, uh, that as a model. But it's the denominational distinctive. But it's found in a corporate founding that they agree together. Does that help? Okay, and then look at the third one, conviction. This is where it's a founded personal persuasion. Okay, so you go from corporate to founded personal persuasion. Let me, let me see if I can uh, grab my notes real quick and get the um, illustration that I had on this because I think that'll be helpful. Um, okay, so yeah, so this is it. Um, so... Imagine, and this is a controversial topic, but to me it shouldn't be, um, alcohol. What, what do Christians do with alcohol? Because there's biblical principles that guard or guide us in the use of alcohol, kind of on both sides of the issue. Timothy's instructed to drink wine for his stomach, and that is alcoholic, okay? Jesus made wine. It was alcoholic. I don't understand all the stuff that how he could do that. It's a miracle we get it. But he served the best wine of the day. And it was at a party and it was a celebration and it was, it was alcoholic. There's other places where, uh, in, in Proverbs. It talks about the king is unwise if he's using alcohol. There's, there's principles on both sides of this. I think that it's a, a principle to say if you partake but you have a friend that is an alcoholic, your principle ought to be to honor your brother and not partake in front of them because it would cause them to stumble. So so there's all these complexities, but what it comes down to is you're looking at the Scripture, a founded personal persuasion, okay? So so that's a, a, a good conviction, but we also need to know that there's some amplitude for that personal conviction that, that gives us freedom but it also gives us the, the uh, room not to be judgmental because my conviction may be different than your conviction and we need to understand and operate within that freedom so that we are winsome with one another. That's healthy Christendom, okay? And, and listen, I know there's denominations that have said, well, alcohol goes into our bylaws and we're not going to be people that partake of, of alcohol. I personally think that that's a danger zone because of the, the, the nature that it is. It's really a personal conviction. Okay? Is that, is that clear enough? So let me give you one on the, the last one, personal, uh, the personal sense or conscience. Here's, here's what it does. The, the conscience gives a sense of relationship to Scripture that is often based on an indirect principle that Scripture gives us. So let me give you like a for instance of that, okay? What do you do about watching an R-rated movie if you're of age? If you're not of age, you ought not be watching it, right? Unless it's at your house and your parents go, yeah, you can watch this. But you don't go sneak into an R-rated movie, teenagers, because that's not what you're to do, okay? 
because there's an age limit on that. But what about it at your house? There's nothing in Scripture that says, do not watch R-rated movies, right? So how do you handle that? Well, I think, you know, you could look and say, well, um, Philippians 4, 8, 9 says this, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think on, on such things. That can guard you about those things, Right? So, so, does that mean you just can't watch an R-rated movie because it's not excellent? No. I mean, there's, there's things that we need to, to filter and, and adjust for. We need to know our propensity to watch certain kinds of things, and, and they may cause us to stumble. Like, can I, I mean, being honest, one of my favorite movies of all time, mo- most impacting movie, I, I sat and wept at the end of it, was Saving Private Ryan. Because all four, my, my two grandfathers and Katie's two grandfathers, all four of them were at our wedding. All four of them served in World War II. And I will never forget, like, placing their lives in the impact of, of that movie. And so many profound things. Is that movie bloody and gory and violent? Yeah. But there's also value to it. And, and so we need to be wise and discerning. So you know what I do? I pick up IMDB. I think it stands for the International Movie Database, something like that. IMDB. And I go down to the parent's guide, scroll down to it, and I start looking at the the features of of films before I watch them. And and I try to apply that Philippians 489 principle because if there's certain things in that, I don't need to be watching them based on, on what IMDb lets me know. Somebody else has done all the work. I don't have to go out in there and be a movie critic. Praise the Lord, okay? But I get to maintain my own standard of personal conscience and purity by those kind of tools without being legalistic. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to give you a thumbs up to go, yeah, watch every rated R movie. I'm trying to say, be wise and discerning. Know what is healthy for you and your family. You, use what God has given you in your conscience to be sensitive to those things. Here's another one, because th- this is, y- we could fall on the wrong side of this coin. I was thinking about how do we guard relationships with non-believers? <laughs> See, some people would go, you shouldn't have any relationship with non-believers. Really? But listen to this verse. They could justify it based on 2 Corinthians 6. Verse 14, it says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Folks, we're not using that verse to justify not being salt and light in the world. Some people can misconstrue that in their conscience. We need to recognize and remember to bring balance to these principles by other scripture because we've already looked at the importance of making disciples, going into all the world. So so we've got to be balanced about how we do these things and not trying to to justify our behavior or or principles based on a certain verse. But here's the thing. You may have a personal conscience and go, you know what? That passage in 2 Corinthians certainly is wise about business dealings. If I'm going to partner with someone in a business, that, that may be very, very important, especially depending on what kind of business it is, right? You may run a business. Well, I don't want to have non-believers in my company. Whoa, I, I'd be like hesitant to, to jump that hoop. 
unless it was like a ministry, right? That, that may be different. But, but we, we want to operate graciously with these things and not let our personal conscience and that sense of principles that the Bible gives us dive down and become what develops our core. That becomes dangerous. That's where we become legalistic, judging people unfairly and dangerously so that we can't win them to Christ. So, so this is, I, I hope, a, a helpful diagram. So let me summarize a couple things. I want to remind you, and if, and yeah, thanks, Julie, you've kept that up. Remember, the core, the Scripture and the core around it, those are essentials of our faith. And we're going to unpack those, some of those, over the, the course of the coming weeks. And we're going to explore what these pillars, the core are, so that we are sound in our doctrine, so that we are thoroughly equipped as church members to give answers for our faith, what we believe, okay? It's going to be fun. It's going to be rich. Second, I want to encourage you with this. What we believe about our God is the most important thing that we believe. And we need to know the truth of Scripture well. So I hope that even like this morning, even though I've spent a lot of time talking about the creeds and confessions and broader ideas, that you hear our heart as leadership and, and you take this away. All of this, all of this is founded in the truth of Scripture. And we're going to handle the truth of Scripture rightly. And that if we don't elevate the person of Jesus Christ primarily through this, then we've missed the boat. But if you look, and, and I hope this kind of came through, and, and I'm going to say this last thing and we're going to pray. But I hope that as you listen to those early testimonies of Scripture, as I was talking about how those were crystallizing truths for what we now kind of understand and employ as creeds, that every one of them in some level elevated our God and His glory, His greatness, His splendor, especially the person of Jesus Christ. And you hear that each one of them was somehow like confessional in this way that it gave a testimony and was like what J.R.I. Packer said, an evangelistic tool. And I would even hope this, that, that if you're here today and you go, I'm not sure I really understand that, that at least this would jump out to you today. The Scriptures and the church as a whole is attempting as best as we can in our human frailty and our, our fallibility, our, sinless, our sinfulness, to make the most of Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you with this. If you are still struggling and you have not confessed, like made that statement, I believe, not just in mental assent, but it's a, a heart brokenness before the Lord, where you've said, I know that I need Jesus to be my Savior. I know that He is the one who uh, came, He died for my sin, He was buried, and He rose again to pay the penalty for my sin, that I might have a renewed relationship with my Heavenly Father. If you've never done that, but you need to confess that, please listen to me. Don't delay. Don't delay that point in your life. 
Because if the Holy Spirit is causing you to like be convinced and convicted of that, and He's wooing you to Him, please respond. Please respond. It'll be the greatest thing that you can ever do in your life. It is the most freedom. It brings the most joy. It changes everything in your life. But most importantly, everything in your life in relationship with the Lord. He is the only avenue of hope. And we all need to be confronted about our confession. What do we say we really believe? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Credo. Will you today, if you've not ever confessed Jesus as Lord, will you confess him as Lord? I want to offer you this means of doing that. Please seek someone out just to get counsel about that. We don't want you doing that in a vacuum. That's why we do this the way we do it. We want to take time to talk to you about what it means to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior so that you would be confident in that. All you have to do is know that you're a sinner, that Jesus is who he says he is, and that you need him as your Lord. It's just that simple. It really is. So please, if that's you, if I'm talking to you, will you seek myself out today or somebody else that you know that you can trust to give you counsel about that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are so many things that can be unpacked, and I think that's why this is part of a series that we need to do. Lord, I pray that ultimately what we would understand as a a church here today is this, that you want us to handle your word well, that we're workmen who do not need to be ashamed. And Lord, part of that is going back to these creeds and confessions to understand how you have set us into all of Christendom that, that has these things accurate and right. And so, Lord, as we explore these truths over the coming weeks, and Lord, as we explore more about your person, Lord, it's not just going to be about creeds and confessions. It's going to be deep doctrine about who you are as a a triune God, dealing with specific attributes that we cannot um, mishandle. Lord, there's going to be so many things unpacked over the next couple months uh, as we work through this. I pray that you prepare our hearts and minds, Lord, that you would uh, help us to be people of the Word so that as we work through these things. You're pleased with us handling your scripture. Lord, we're thankful that you've given it to us. And Lord, we, we thank, are thankful for the, the people that have gone before us and have rightly divided the word that we can stand on their shoulders in some of these great tools and instruments that help us to be unified in our faith, to help us to be witnesses to the hope that we possess. And now, Father, I want to lastly pray, if there's anyone in this room that has experienced conviction and they they have been uh, more firmly convinced of their need to respond to you in faith. I pray, Lord, that they would uh, not delay in that response or instead they would quickly respond to the the wooing of your spirit. They would seek out counsel to know that they are secure in their relationship with you for eternity. So, Father, I, I thank you for everyone being here today, for the opportunity that we've had to break open the Word to, to hear the truth of, of these great doctrines. And, Lord, uh, just to consider the hope of the gospel. We love you and pray that as we go through this week, we would worship you well, not just in things that we say, but also in how we live out our lives with one another. 
So, Father, we want to go and connect in communities and change lives by sharing the love and good news of Jesus Christ with others now. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.